Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Rodney Gypsy Hustle, excuse me, Smith. (laughs) I should try that again. (laughs) Rodney Gypsy Smith was a British evangelist in the late 19th to early 20th century and a contemporary of Fanny Crosby. Uh, When he was just a young man, uh, Smith attended a meeting at his church uh, in which there was a group of men giving testimonies to how they had come to faith in Christ. Uh, One man stood and spoke of how the Lord saved him after being in prison for many years for uh, burglary. Another man stood up then and was weeping with a trembling voice and said that in 1881, uh, he was brought before a grand jury for murder. Uh, He testified that the Lord had saved him from being hung for his crimes or alleged crimes and uh, continuing to live a life in sin. Another man then stood and testified that the Lord saved him from uh, being alcoholic for 20 years, Uh, but his life radically changed when the Lord saved him. Then another man stood up and said he was a counterfeiter for many years, but the Lord saved him as well. And then another man stood up and said he'd had an up-and-down life experience. He said this, I've had a checkered career. I have ridden around Manchester with the Prime Minister, and I have ridden in the back of a police van. I've been a tax collector, and I have swept the floors for tax collectors. I've been a drunk on champagne, and I have begged for pennies just to buy a drink. I have dined with city council members, and I have begged for crust of bread on the streets. But Jesus saved me from that. And as they went on, Gypsy Smith, the uh, famous evangelist from Great Britain, couldn't sit still any longer, so he stood up and he said, Men, listen, God has done wonders for you, but don't you forget he did more for this gypsy than all of you put together because he saved me before I got to where you did. Now, I know most of you listening here today, uh, you've probably not committed any felonies, at least I hope not, and uh, some of you may have committed some misdemeanors, and most of you have probably committed infractions of some type. However, the Apostle Paul is going to make it clear in the text that we're going to look at today that we all have sinned against God. And that we all, all of us, including myself, deserve capital punishment from him. But he will also make it clear there is good news and there is hope for us. And so with that, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 and to pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder that you received this morning. And if you forgot your Bible, just uh, raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have plenty that we can loan out. We want you to be able to follow along with us. Our theme verse for this series that 
sort of encapsulates uh, what Paul is trying to say in the letter and the, the main theme that goes throughout is Ephesians 1.4. Uh, let's say it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, throughout this letter, Paul is reminding us indirectly and directly that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. Your position in Christ should determine your purpose in life. And what's our purpose in life? Well, simply put, in Ephesians 1, verses 12 and 14, it's to glorify God in everything that we do. Thus, our big idea for today is this, the, the sermon in a sentence, God's grace resurrects the spiritually dead and motivates the spiritually alive. God's grace resurrects the spiritually dead and motivates the spiritually alive. Perhaps no other text in the book of Ephesians than this one illustrates the believer's condition before Christ and then position in Christ and then purpose of life after coming to know Christ. It also could be said that chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 that we'll be studying today follows the ideal template for a Christian testimony from God's perspective. And that is your life before Christ, how you came to know Christ, and how Christ changed your life. And so with that, if you would, follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the first point on your outline about grace that Paul is trying to make, and that is that, number one, Christ followers are chosen out of a graveyard. They're chosen out of a graveyard. He, he answers the question here in verses 1 through 3, what was I saved from? A graveyard, obviously, is, is a resting place or a gathering place for uh, dead bodies. And in essence, the scriptures describe earth as a graveyard with spiritually dead people walking around on it. Uh, Paul begins by telling the Ephesians what they used to be. You see it there in verse 1. I would encourage you to underline the first three words of verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. This refers to their spiritual condition before coming to know Christ. Now, the plural form of trespasses and sins indicates not just one-time boo-boos or offenses, uh, but repeated, deliberate acts of disobedience against God. The apostle is using the imagery of death to make a very important point here. And that is, 
Just as physically dead people are unable to respond to stimuli, spiritually dead people are unable to respond to the stimulus of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Physically dead people are unable to communicate. Spiritually dead people are unable to communicate with God. Physically dead people are unable to walk. And spiritually dead people are unable and unwilling to walk with God. Physically dead people have no appetite for food. They can't eat. And in a similar sense, spiritually dead people have no hunger for spiritual things. This reminds me of my growing up years in the 1980s. In December of 1983, music history was made when the most influential pop music video of all time was released on MTV. Pop artist Michael Jackson recruited Hollywood movie director John Landis to direct a 13-minute music video for the title track to his number one album, Thriller. The first of its kind, the video ended up winning several awards and setting a new benchmark for the industry. And At the climax of the video, there's a lengthy choreographed dance with Jackson and 20 to 25 corpses. Now, the intrigue of the video can be found in the paradox of the dance. And, I'm, and, and it's simply this. Dead people aren't supposed to dance. Although they look alive, they're actually supposed to be dead. Now, I'm not showing you this screenshot from the video because I'm a Michael Jackson fan. I may have struggled with fandom back then in the 80s and whether it would be cool to like him or not, but but I'm showing this to you because I want to do everything possible to impress on your mind how God sees your condition apart from Christ. The apostle is saying that if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you are among the walking dead. To God, you look like one of the wicked, decaying zombies on television. And if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this is how you used to look, but don't anymore. So don't look back on your life before Christ if you know him, wishing you could go back to the way things were, or maybe thinking it was more fun back then, or look back nostalgically on your life before Christ, because Paul says it was gory, ugly, and you were spiritually dead. There's nothing good about it. You were separated from God, unable to talk to him, to hear him, to relate to him. And as you'll soon see, you were on on the road to spending eternity separated from him. Paul goes on then to describe further the lifestyle the Ephesians were called out of. And he does so by giving us four characteristics of unbelievers. And these are letters A, B, C, and D on your outline. So uh, besides being spiritually dead, unbelievers, letter A, follow worldly thinking. They follow worldly thinking. He says, uh, following the course of the world, the NIV uh, renders this when you follow the ways of the world, which is fine. But in many cases, when the Bible uses the word world, 
It's referring to the system of values and goals and thinking that is proliferated by Satan, uh, fueled by our sin nature, and in opposition to God and what he wants. Unbelievers think like the world thinks, love what the world loves, fear what the world fears, and they talk like the world talks, all of which God hates. Next, Paul says, letter B, they follow Satan. Unbelievers follow Satan, uh, following the prince of the power of the air. This is one of several names given to Satan in the scriptures. Unbelievers are like a medieval slave with a nose ring chained to the wrist of their master. And what's worse than that graphic illustration is the fact that unbelievers don't even know they are a slave and in bondage to the evil one. Next, unbelievers also, letter C, according to Paul in verse, verse 3, they pursue sinful desires. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. The flesh is a synonym for our sin nature. And it's that part of our hearts that makes us want to rebel against God, to make our own path, to do what we think is right to be self-centered and to hurt others who get in the way as we try to seek pleasure. But notice how Paul includes himself in this list now by using the plural pronoun we. He's saying, hey, I did too. It means that we pursued whatever felt good, tasted good, sounded good, looked good no matter the consequences, in order to satisfy, satisfy excuse me, our flesh. So the consequence of this, thinking like the world, following Satan, pursuing sinful desires, is then found in the latter part of verse 3. And this is letter D. Unbelievers live under God's judgment. They live under God's judgment. Paul says, you were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or, or if you don't know the Lord yet, you still are a child of wrath. The phrase simply means that those who do not know Christ are just waiting for God's wrath to be doled out on them for their rebellion and disobedience to him. There are more than 20 Hebrew words in more than 600 passages of the Old Testament that refer to God's wrath. Now, one myth that many people believe is that, oh, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament. You know, he's not like that anymore. He's a God of grace in the New Testament. No, he's also wrathful in the New Testament. Uh, for example, there are two primary words used in the New Testament for God's wrath, the one Paul uses here is the Greek word orge. It appears 36 times in the New Testament, and it describes God's strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with a focus on retribution. 
God's wrath is a natural byproduct of his holiness in response to our sinfulness. And verses 2 and 3 make it clear that unbelievers have no one but themselves to blame and no one but God can help them. So it sort of dispenses with the myth that, well, without Christ, I was still on my way to heaven. I was just going to have to do a lot more work to get there. But now that I know Christ, oh, praise the Lord, I don't have to do as much work. No, what God's word clearly teaches and what God has clearly demonstrated throughout history is that those who know him through a personal relationship with his son receive the gift of eternal life. And those who refuse the gift of his son suffer the consequences for their sin by spending eternity in hell. That's what God's word says. Now, there's hope and encouragement here, though, in these first three verses. I think uh, one bit of encouragement is that this disposes the myth spread by the evil one that you have to have your life all together before you can become a Christian. You don't. The truth is, all Christ's followers were falling apart when they got saved. And Jesus is the only one holding them together afterwards. That's the truth. So don't feel like you've got to be good enough before you can turn your life around. No, no, you don't. The, 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 the reason, the fact that you're not good enough is why you need Jesus. So God's grace resurrects the spiritually dead and motivates the spiritually alive. Now, you might be thinking, man, this is, this is a depressing sermon. I mean, I wish I would have stayed home today. I mean, honey, why did we have to visit a church on the day, the pastor's given like the most depressing sermon of all time. Well, I understand, but hang in there because it's going to get real good, okay? It's, it's just the beginning of the movie, you know? The hero hasn't showed up yet, so just hang in there. Because verses 1 through 3 focus on our sinfulness, but verses 4 through 9 that we're going to look at next focus on God's graciousness despite our sin. Let's look at verses uh, 4 to 7. I'll read those next. So Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's uh, number two in your outline, the second truth about grace that Paul is teaching us this morning, and that is Christ followers are chosen to be resurrected. Christ followers are chosen to be resurrected. Paul answers the question here, how was I saved? Whereas the first three verses answer the question, what, what was I saved from? Now he's answering the question, how was I saved? Now, I want to encourage you to do what I've done in my Bible, and that is to underline the first two words of verse 4. But 
God. They seem small and insignificant, but they are very, very important. Or if you have a different translation, you might want to write in the margin, but God. I like to call this type of phrase a pivot or a hinge because Paul's stream of thought transitions from this depressing description of our condition without Christ to what God did for us through Christ. The two words appear, but God, 43 times in the scriptures. I did a search on BibleGateway.com yesterday on this. I just put in phrase, but God, search, 43 times. And I just perused all the references where but God was put together. And what I found is interesting. A majority of the time, but God follows some dire circumstance and then introduces a divine solution to the problem. So, for example, we could find some random Old Testament passage. The people of God disobeyed. They got conquered by an enemy. Their life stunk. Their world fall apart. But God intervened, saved them again, loved them, forgave them. And that's just the, the pattern. The esteemed commentator and theologian, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this about these two words. He says, these two words in and of themselves contain the whole of the gospel. But God. Notice in verse 4, as Paul continues to unwrap and unpack this beautiful gospel message that he is sharing and we've been entrusted with, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So, so after the huge problem is introduced in verses 1 through 3, what did God do? Well, motivated by his loving character, he showed us mercy. Well, what's mercy? I like to define it simply as this. It's not getting what I do deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. What's the motivation between, between, excuse me, behind God's mercy? The great love with which he loved us. Paul said God's love is great not only because it's God who loves, but also because of what's true about us in verses 1 through 3. That God would love a people like that and be willing to initiate reconciliation with them when he didn't do anything wrong in the first place. We did. We were unfit, unfaithful, unworthy, unrighteous, and undeserving. But God still chose to establish a relationship with us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Notice how the apostle had to first describe the gravity of our sin in verses 1 through 3 before we could then comprehend the depth of God's grace 
in verses 4 through 9. So you can't understand the good until you see the bad. You can't appreciate light until you've seen darkness. So three things, then, Paul says, that God's grace has done for those who know Christ as their Savior. And this is letters A, B, and C on your outline. Letter A, he revived us. He revived us. It says in verse 5, but God, and I'm putting that in parentheses because it's assumed, because it's a, it's a run-on sentence, he made us alive. So instead of being spiritually dead, as Paul talked about in verse 1, those who have a personal relationship with Christ have been made spiritually alive. We are now able to communicate with God, to receive promptings from the Holy Spirit, to be aware of our own sin, uh, to be conscious of the spiritual realm, and to have the power to say no to sin. We've not been resuscitated. This is an important clarification I want to make. It's not like um, Jesus was an EMT dispatched to just resuscitate someone who had stopped breathing. No, 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 no. We were resurrected. And there's a big difference. You see, because resuscitation involves reviving someone who wasn't dead so they can go back to their old life or same life. Resurrection involves bringing someone back from the dead to a new life. Next, he promoted us. Letter B, he promoted us. Paul says, he seated us with him, with him in the heavenly places. Those who follow Jesus Christ are relocated from the slums of spiritual poverty to the palace of spiritual royalty. That's amazing. We are not only made citizens of, of, of God's kingdom, but also given all the access and privileges that come with being part of the king's family. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but because he chose to adopt us into his royal family. I think it goes without saying that the gospel is the best rags-to-riches story in world history. Next, if you would, look at verses 8 and 9. This is where we get letter C from. In verses 8 and 9, very popular verses. I'm sure you've heard of them before. They're often quoted, and rightfully so. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's letter C. He saved us. What's, what else did he do for those who are in Christ? He saved them. In verse 7, Paul says, God showed the immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's, uh, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you've been showered with an amount of grace that cannot be measured, is what he's saying. Don't miss that. 
Paul uses an interesting word in the Greek text for immeasurable. It's the, it's the Greek word huperbalo. It, it means to throw beyond the usual mark. It, it paints a word picture of a discus thrower in the Olympics who throws a discus so far that the tape measure can't even measure the throw. God's grace is immeasurable. Now in verse 8, let's begin to unpack these two very popular verses. For by grace. Grace comes from a Greek word, charis. Uh, it's a popular name for daughters. Pastor's daughters tend to name their, sorry, pastors tend to name their daughters this. If you've ever heard the name charis, it's, it's the Greek word for grace. So instead of naming them grace, I'm going to call you charis. So you learn Greek. I guess that's the, the reason. But uh, seriously, the word charis is used some 155 times in the New Testament. It often refers to God's unmerited favor or undeserved kindness. Uh, here's a simple definition. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. It's getting what I don't deserve. Now, unfortunately, the world and even some believers and churches and denominations have either changed or they have really limited the definition of this beautiful word to mean something that God never intended. And thus, I feel compelled to clarify what grace means across the entire book of, of scriptures. And so if you would, take a look at the two-column table I've given you on your handout. Uh, here's, here's what grace is and what grace is not. It it is not earned through effort. It is unmerited favor. It is not deserved. It is undeserved. It is not, and this is one of the big myths I see, it's not God lowering his standards. It's God raising us to his standard. It's not an excuse for sin. Instead, it's a motivation for holiness. It is not justification for spiritual apathy. Instead, grace is the power to change. Next, Paul says, verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. What does this really mean? Well, faith in its simplest sense, is agreeing with what God has already said about himself and us. Yep, you're right. I'm wrong. I agree with you. I will live my life trusting what you've said about yourself and about me. Now, in this context, it means we agree with what God has said about our spiritual condition and that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that we trust God will grant us eternal life as he has promised. So how does someone receive the gift of eternal life? Well, the answer is simply this. By repenting of their sin, and through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, surrendering 
their life to follow Christ. It's simply praying something like this, Jesus, I agree that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. Please forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and resurrecting yourself three days later. Please come into my life and cleanse me and make me your new creation. I accept your gift of salvation and I want to follow you the rest of my life. Just something as simple as that. Now, Paul clarifies this is not of your own doing. If you've prayed a prayer like that and you've seen Christ come into your life and change you and you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you're being changed by him as you continue to walk with him, well, Paul wants to make it clear. Now, 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 now don't start thinking that you had something to do with this. It, it, it must be received, not earned. Because he knows, inspired by the Holy Spirit and told what to write here, that we have a propensity for wanting to obtain eternal life on our own terms or maybe another way than the way that God's provided. But Paul clarifies, no, 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 that can't be done. There is only one way. Because it's God's heaven, it was God's idea, he didn't do anything wrong. You chose to sin and rebel against him. He's providing the one way, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. So thus, you can't give enough, serve enough, love enough, sing enough, pray enough, or get baptized enough to be saved. It's simply a gift you must individually receive from the Lord. And by the way, growing up in a Christian family doesn't save you either. Walking into a Christian church doesn't save you either. Why? Verse 9, Paul answers that question preemptively. It's like he was reading our minds so that no one can boast. He, he knows because of our inherited sin nature, not only will we try to earn what we can't earn, we'll try to boast about what we, can't, we shouldn't be boasting about. The Lord doesn't want any boasters in his heaven because that would be hell. This is another reason why no professing Christ follower should ever brag about their accomplishments by saying, hey, look what I did, or I'm so proud of myself. You'd be proud of me here on earth. No, no Christ follower should ever say that. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, we were saved from needing to feed our flesh with such attention-seeking tactics. And we won't be able to boast about anything in eternity. There was an old Indian chief, after living many years in sin, he was led to faith in Christ by a missionary. His friends asked him to explain the change in his life. And so he, he reached down and picked up a little worm and he placed it on a pile of leaves. And then, touching a match to the leaves, he watched them smolder and burst into flames with the little worm sitting at the center of the pile on top. As the flames worked their way up to the center where the worm was laying, the old chief suddenly plunged his hand in and pulled the worm out. 
And then holding the worm gently in his hand, he testified to the grace of God before his friends and said, me, that worm. The testimony of every Christ follower can be found in verses 1 through 9. For example, try putting your name in each of these verses. At one time, Carrie was dead in his trespasses and sins. He followed the world and the evil one, verse 2. He lived according to the passions of his flesh and was a child of wrath, verse 3. But God, February 9th, 1991, because of the great love which he loved Carrie, verse 4, raised him up, seated him in the heavenly places, and poured out on him immeasurable grace by giving him the gift of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. How about you? When was your but God day? Can you, can you go through and put your name in here? One time Maya was dead in her trespasses and sins. Verse 1, she followed the world and the evil one. Verse 2, she lived according to the passages of her flesh and was a child of wrath. Verse 3, but God. And then after that, with great love with which he loved her. Verse 4, raised her up, seated her in the heavenly places and poured out on her immeasurable grace by giving her the gift of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, how about you? So I, I just have to ask, are there any worms here today? God, in his grace, resurrects the spiritually dead and motivates the spiritually alive. Here's the motivation part. It comes in at the end of the passage, verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's number three, final point on your outline. The third truth about grace. Christ followers are chosen for a purpose. Christ followers are chosen for a purpose. The question Paul is answering now is, what was I saved for? The apostle is telling the Ephesians and us that believers are saved in order to, and here's A and B on your outline. I've broken it down just to make it very clear. Believers are saved in order to, A, become like Christ. Not to sit on cruise control until eternity comes. Not to just take it easy and go, woo, I don't have to worry about hell anymore because Jesus punched my ticket to heaven. I got nothing else to do. No. That is not what the scriptures teach. He says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. The, the word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means a piece of art or a masterpiece that an artist would create. This means that our conversion is not the end 
of our sinful life, but rather the beginning of a new life, a process that lasts the rest of our life, where from the moment you committed to follow Christ, the Father began using chisels, hammers, and brushes, trying to make you look more like his son. Not, not physically with the beard and the long hair, hippie look, not that, with the suntan from the Middle East. No, in character, in behavior, in, your, in you, how you act and think. And I know for some of us, I won't call out names, I'll just only mention myself, the Lord sometimes has to use jackhammers and dynamite, okay? Others of you, you just needed some little chiseling, you're okay. But the Lord is like, he's like a starving artist that goes into a junkyard and everybody else sees trash, the Lord sees potential. And he picks up pieces of metal and wood and begins to assemble and create a work of art, a masterpiece that's going to look like his son. So believers are saved in order to become like Christ, but also believers are saved in order to be served like Christ. Again, no cruise control here. There's no coasting. The Lord wants to do more than help us act like Jesus. He also wants to use us to do great works that impact eternity like Jesus did. So he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So as we are sanctified, the Lord wants to work through us to reach others with the gospel and to use our spiritual gifts to build up his church. And so if you're not serving the Lord through his church, his word says he expects more of you. That's why we've been unashamed here at Vanguard to ask people to serve and use their gifts to join a ministry team because God's word says you should do it because Jesus expects you to serve. Now, I have to clarify, although good works cannot save a lost sinner, they should be a fruit seen in the life of a found saint. The genuinely saved person should want to serve the master that rescued them from the fire. Now, we want to be doers of God's word here at Vanguard because Jesus said, if you love me, then follow, obey my commandments. And James wrote in James 1, 25, hey, do not be just hearers of God's word, but doers of it, and you will be blessed. And so here's two applications that come to mind. The Lord could give you some additional ones that fit your context, but here's two that came to my mind. One, admit your need for grace frequently. Admit your need for grace frequently. If, if you know Christ personally, admit to yourself and to others often that he not only saved you, but, well, let me say this again. He not only saved you from the consequences of your sin, but he also saved you from the power of your sin. This means he doesn't expect perfection from you, but he does expect progress. The Lord expects those who have received his immeasurable grace to grow spiritually, to pursue holiness and love him deeply. 
And his grace frees us up to admit that we have sin struggles, we, we have weaknesses, we have blind spots. We have shortcomings, and we can admit that without any shame. At the same time, we should admit it without being proud. Yeah, nobody's perfect, man. I'm just like, hey, you got your problems too. You want me to start listening to your things? No, 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 no. That's, that's pride. <laughs> what I mean is by admitting your need for grace, like, I know I'm still growing, I'm still learning, and I'm asking the Lord to help me with that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. If you don't know Christ yet, admit that you need, God, that you need God's grace, that you can't earn your own salvation then. And then receive him by grace through faith in his atoning work on the cross. That would be an application for unbelievers. Number two, celebrate God's grace to you frequently. Celebrate it. This means that when we worship on Sunday morning, we should worship like death row inmates who just had their sentence commuted. That's one of the, I think that is possibly one of the problems for stale, stoic worship in churches, is that the people in those churches have forgotten what they were saved from. Because when inmates get, their, they get their, their sentence commuted and they're released to go back into the world, they're, they're not stoic. There's tears and they're going, yes, oh man, they're excited and all that. And it makes the news because it's great headlines and it's, it's captivating. Whereas if they were, thank you, Mr. Warden. Start my life again. It wouldn't make the news. It'd be, it'd be depressing. They wouldn't show it on TV. It also means that when we celebrate God's grace frequently to us, it means that when we boast, we only boast in the Lord. Because we don't deserve to take credit for things that he helped us do. It means we say things like, praise God, instead of, look at what I did. I'm so proud of myself. We go, praise the Lord. Look how he answered my prayer and helped me get a good grade on this test. Because if it wasn't for him when I was tired and crying and I was studying and nothing was sticking in my brain, he helped me. As opposed to taking the test after doing all the studying and crying and then get the good grade and go, hey, look what I did. Christ followers should be the most humble people walking on the face of the planet because they realize that they bring nothing, own nothing, and can do nothing apart from Christ. Jesus even said that in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So celebrate God's grace to you frequently. Frequently. Well, last spring... 396 students at Morehouse College started their graduation day eager to celebrate the new chapter they were about to begin. They were strapping, uh, putting on their, uh, their, their hats. Uh, what do you call the hats that they wear? Mortarboard. Mortarboard, thank you. And they were putting on their robes. And However, they were, many of these students were f strapped with the burden of student loan debt. Their commencement ceremony began in typical fashion, but quickly changed when Morehouse alumni 
and speaker Robert F. Smith gave the traditional commencement speech. But near the end of his message, the billionaire investor who founded Vista Equity Partners said the following. We're going to put a little fuel in your bus. The class of 2019 is my class, and my family is making a grant to eliminate all your student loans. Smith went on to explain that he wanted to free the students of their debt burden so they could begin their new life with even more enthusiasm and freedom. Within a matter of seconds, the faces of those 396 students erupted in exuberant celebration. They high-fived and hugged each other and continued to hoot and holler with glee. On average, Morehouse students graduate with between $35,000 to $40,000 in student loan debt. But the $34 million grant that Smith said he was going to give to the school it meant that graduates could apply for a wider range of graduate schools now, that money was not a problem. It, it meant they could buy a house sooner. It meant that they wouldn't have to be a burden to their parents any longer. Students who were interviewed at the conclusion of the commencement ceremonies were at a loss for words and crying and vowed to not waste this gift that Mr. Smith just gave them. I think you know where I'm going with this. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the debt of your sin has been paid in full. And you've been given a gracious gift of eternal life so you can live a new chapter for him. Don't waste it. And if he's not your Lord and Savior, he wants to be. Today. So don't waste your opportunity. God's grace resurrects the spiritually dead and it motivates the spiritually alive. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.